Welcome to Brand on Purpose, the podcast dedicated to uncovering the untold stories behind the most impactful purpose-driven companies, human beings, and organizations. I'm your host, Aaron Quicken. Perhaps more than ever, consumers are drawn to and focused on beautiful, meaningful things, products with a story behind them that are sustainably made and part of a larger force for good. It's a pull that my guest today, David Velotsky, a retailer Uncommon Goods, understands all too well. From its origins as a collection of craft show finds, Uncommon Goods has grown to employ over 200 year-round team members, showcasing thousands of hand-picked designs from around the world. The team searches year-round for creative finds from around the world, discovering unique pieces through online submissions from a community of artists and designers. The focus is on offering independent artists and designers a place to showcase their work, all while prioritizing being a force for good and building sustainable business for the long term. Dave, welcome to Brand on Purpose. Thanks, Aaron. It's great to be here. Appreciate your having me. I appreciate you and everything that you've done since the founding of Uncommon Goods in 1999. Would you believe I was 13 when I started the company? I was 10 then, if you were 13. Well, congrats on all the success. Fast forward to now 2021, you employ over 200 people. You have made not just a commercial success of the venture, but also a huge impact socially in communities around the world. If you can just start from the very beginning, our listeners love to hear founders' stories, so take your time. Don't worry about going on too long when it comes to this. And take us back to 1999. At the time, I was a research analyst at Goldman Sachs. I was the head of U.S. retail research, and part of my research was actually internet retailing. I had always, going back to when I was a kid, dreamed of being an entrepreneur always also very independent-minded and decided I wanted to pay for college myself. So I worked throughout college, took out student loans, went to the State University of New York at Binghamton and came out of college with debt and a dream of starting my own record label. That didn't quite work out. I ran Slipped Disc, your home for vinyl and chrome when I was in college. That was our university record store. I wasn't 13 when I started the business because back then there weren't even compact discs. That's how old I am. You worked at a record store, right? I ended up somewhat by accident, not with great intent on Wall Street. Thought I'd work there for a year or two, pay off my student loans, and then start my own business. And I ended up finding the work more interesting than I expected, not any more socially redeeming than I expected, but ended up working on Wall Street for 14 years, 12 of them at Goldman Sachs, and had learned about the internet independently through a friend of mine in the early to mid-90s, and then started incorporating it in my work and was convinced that it was going to be huge as a retail channel, and so started writing about companies like Amazon. I worked on eBay's initial public offering. I saw this incredible opportunity and spent a couple of years as what I would call a glorified movie critic, an analyst writing about the industry, and really wanted to be an actor. And even though I was arguably a critic on the world's biggest stage, being at one of the largest firms on Wall Street dealing with the biggest companies, I really wanted to have a more of a positive impact and also take on the challenge of trying to build something. It's one thing watching other people writing about it. It's very different trying to lead a team and build something and also build something that's 
consistent with my values. One of the challenges I had on Wall Street, while I didn't think that what I was doing was immoral, I felt it was amoral. And I really wanted work that was consistent with my values and whatever small way to try to have a positive impact with the work that I did. I decided in late 1998 that I was going to start an internet retail business. And then the 64000 or million dollar question became, okay, what? It's very easy to see an opportunity, broadly speaking, in e-commerce, but what is your actual business proposition going to be? And somewhat by accident, I ended up visiting a craft show put on by the Smithsonian Museum in Washington, D.C., and a light bulb went off there because, number one, there were huge crowds of customers. The place was packed, and I spent a lot of time talking to customers and also talking to vendors who were independent, handmade artists, makers. And what I saw was that that market was really inefficient in the physical world and could be a huge opportunity to make more compelling for both the buyer and the seller online. And that was where the idea came from. Just for some context, especially for our listeners who are younger, it wasn't so easy. It's still not easy today, but it's easier today to start an internet business than, say, in the 90s. It was the wild, wild west. The dominant players then were AOL, Netscape, Microsoft, Intel. There was no real dominance no Google, no Facebook. No Apple. I mean, there was Apple, but at the time that was like a $3 stock. They were having their issues. There was no iPhone. There's no iPhone until 2007 and there's no cloud. So it wasn't that easy. The obstacles, the hurdles are still pretty high, but I guess you did have a slight advantage in that you were a student of the industry through the lens of retail because you were watching companies pushing sock puppets and other things across the line and you were learning a lot. My view is the only thing easy as an entrepreneur is failure. And I know that can sound demotivating and demoralizing, but I actually believe that it's always hard. If there are fewer competitors, that's probably because there's not that much of a market. And that was the case back in 1999 when I first started the business it was really hard. It was like the Wild West. You're like a pioneer. There's no electricity, no running water, or the equivalent of that in e-commerce. Today, it seems much easier. I thought there was a lot of competition back in 1999, but everything's relative. 22 years later, because in part, there's more electricity and plumbing, what have you, it's much easier for somebody to spin up a new business through Shopify or through some other means. Back then, the three letters ESG did not really exist at all. There wasn't really a whole lot of discussion about social impact. This is pre-TOMS. In so many ways, you were really a pioneer and literally an OG when it comes to mapping values against the business and trying to be for purpose and profit. And now today, you're a B Corp. I learned about B Corps before they existed, actually, in 2006. It was very important to me to run this business consistent with my values. And so from day one, we were no leather, feather, and fur. I've been a vegetarian since I was 11. I'm also a bit of a libertarian. I don't like telling other people what to do, but if I'm running the business, I can say we're not going to kill, support killing animals. 
And so that was a bright line that we drew at the beginning. We also didn't want to outsource our warehouse. And I wanted to create jobs in New York and I wanted to pay a living wage. And so we've always paid way above the minimum wage and had our warehouse in New York City from day one. We actually didn't start shipping merchandise till 2000, but our warehouse was in Manhattan from 2000 through 2007. We're now in Brooklyn, but yes, we have a majority of Uncommon Goods products shipped from Brooklyn. How back in 2000 did you get the word out to designers and artists that you're this platform that they can sell on? How did you do that? We went to craft shows and trade shows. You physically went to these shows? Mainly in the US, San Francisco, Springfield, Mass. American Craft Council was one of the big sponsors of a lot of handmade shows. We would go out and press the flesh with artists and designers. It's a relatively small community. A lot of folks know one another. The word would get out. I will tell you, back then, there was a huge amount of skepticism about the internet. And when the internet bubble burst, there was a lot of, I told you so, this thing's a flash in the pan, it's snake oil, what have you. So we spent a lot of our time not just selling vendors on uncommon goods, but selling them on the internet. Back then, shoppers were very worried about credit cards being compromised. And while I view Amazon as a fierce competitor, they've also been a great ally in terms of helping pave the way to get shoppers comfortable online. Now when you go to physically go to a a fair craft show, they have Square, they have ways of just executing a transaction right there. But back then, you needed to convince them that your platform is safe, you're not ripping them off. And you didn't have as much technology infrastructure in order to support a lot of the transactions. There weren't as many options. That's right. And also, if I'm shopping for your birthday, much of our business is a gift business. The craft shows are like pop-up stores. They're there only two or three days. And so it's typically not convenient for the shopper. And similarly for the seller, that Washington, D.C. Smithsonian show I went to, there were artists that were traveling from as far away as California. And you've got to pay to transport all your merchandise there. Whatever doesn't sell, you have to pay to transport back. And these shows are all on the weekend. And artists are like the rest of us. They like having social lives. And you're basically destroying your social life because your weekends are devoted to these shows. You're obviously doing something right. So just small, fun story. We're celebrating the holidays. And my son, who's 19, going on 20, comes home from school. He doesn't have the best track record of gift giving during the holidays. Not surprising. He has a good track record of accepting gifts, not necessarily giving gifts. And he's also kind of a fan of efficiency. So he'll do like, quote unquote, family gifts. One year, he saw a great deal online and it was like Google Home, but it was that spot. It was the smaller one. And he got four clearly for like 40 bucks. He just gave us all one. So this year, I consider this a breakthrough moment. And as a father, you can appreciate this. He went to Uncommon Goods and he bought us all custom mugs. And it says like Quitkin family established in 1998 because when my wife and I got married. He's got these little pictures of me, my wife, my daughter and him. And it's super cute. And to be honest with you, I knew about Uncommon Goods, but I wasn't that familiar with it. And of course, I knew that my team had booked this interview. And I texted him earlier in the day. I'm like, didn't you get those mugs from Uncommon Goods? He's like, yes, sir. (laughs) So that's great. Also, it's interesting because his generation, obviously, they seek ways to engage with retailers, especially online retailers that have a conscience and give back and have a very strong moral compass. So you're clearly doing something right. 
Thank you. Yeah. One of the challenges as a retail business is as you get older, your customer gets older and being around for 22 years in some ways is an advantage, but in other ways it can be a liability. So we have to make sure that we continue to stay fresh and relevant. How many designers and artists do you have that are selling on the platform roughly? I'd say probably 1500, give or take. I'm assuming there's some sort of a process that you go through to vet them to onboard them onto the platform. Clearly they have to go through your own screen in terms of what you will and won't tolerate as it relates to anything from supply chain to the materials that they're using. I think in many ways we're more like a store than a platform in the sense that we're buying inventory from the artists and vendors in the vast majority of cases. And so our buying team is going to an artist, looking at their collection of products and handpicking perhaps two or three out of a hundred pieces that they offer that they think is the right fit for our brand and our customer. And in many cases, trying to get those products to be only available at Uncommon Goods. So the mugs that you got are an exclusive to Uncommon Goods. Those are custom items. So we actually don't have the inventory because obviously we didn't know your son was going to have such great taste and buy them in advance. That's an important piece of the business is the work that our buyers do in pulling together the collection. In addition, we have a product development team, an in-house design team where we work both independently and also with artists. And about 15% of what we sell is designed in-house, and nearly half of what we sell is only available at Uncommon Goods. So how big is that buying team? Depends on how you define it. We have buyers, we have planners, meaning people who are responsible for figuring out how many units of each item we have. We have folks who are involved in site merchandising, and then we have folks who are involved in product design and manufacturing. And I would say those teams combine probably 30 to 40 people. You had to shut down your facility for a couple of months early on in the days of when COVID first hit. We chose to. So that was, we were technically exempted by the governor's standards because we operated a warehouse. Our leadership team was torn. A lot of our team wanted to continue working. It's obviously, if we're shipping 80% of our goods out of Brooklyn, closing it down for we don't know how long is scary financially. Based on everything I was reading and hearing externally and also talking to some of our team members, it just felt unsafe. I made the decision, which was not entirely popular with everybody at our company, but I made the decision to shut down. And we ended up staying closed for about three months. But fortunately, we do work with two other warehouses, one in the Midwest and one on the West Coast, and we're able to transfer about a third of the items that we offer and keep running. It's hard because you know as well as I do, it's this calculus of you want to keep people employed, especially during a pandemic, and obviously support your designers and your artist community and move inventory. But at the same time, you also want to keep people healthy and safe. And that's tough. And it was a big reminder of what really matters. It's a heavy load. And one, I've dealt with a lot, subway strikes, hurricanes, you name it, over the years. 
but there was nothing that I've confronted where I've said I can be responsible for one of our team members or a family member of theirs dying. And that's a heavy load to bear. And that helped influence my decision. And I care a lot about our customers. I care a lot about the designers. I care a lot more about our team. My guess is that your team is probably very diverse and probably lives in some of the communities that are underserved when it comes to access to good health care, as well as testing and a vaccine. Yes. And living in close quarters with in many cases, essential workers, healthcare workers, or other delivery or other workers. And so we were starting to see some of our team members. Back then, there was no testing for COVID, but we had some team members getting sick with COVID-like symptoms. I'd like to have one episode one day going forward where I never talk about COVID ever again, just like I never want to talk about our former president ever again. I don't want to talk about COVID. Any- We're not there yet. We're there in the first, but not in the latter. One of the parts of your business model that is so special is that you partner with nonprofit organizations like Better to Give, where every purchase made, you donate a dollar to a partner of the buyer's choosing since 2001. And you've donated more than a few million dollars since its inception. Can you talk a little bit about that program? Because the one-for-one model or the buy this, we donate that, to everybody in more recent modern times, seems like it's this new great thing. A lot of companies that have been on this podcast, Warby Parker, Bombas, others, they don't necessarily claim to have founded it, but they definitely helped socialize the concept. Yet you were doing this way, way, way back when. I am not a terribly religious person, but I believe in the biblical adage that you should actually give anonymously. And I also believe in the adage, it's better to give than receive. And I get personally some of my greatest satisfaction out of volunteer work that I do and thought that our customers would appreciate it if we were to donate on their behalf. So it doesn't better to give, doesn't cost our customers anything. Back then, the company was very small. Initially, I was donating money to a high school program that I helped found. It's now named Comprehensive Youth Development. And the idea was, hey, I'm giving money away. We could get some credit for it and we'll list some other nonprofits that other team members felt passionately about. And so we created a few different nonprofits that the customer could choose from and we would donate a dollar per order. Today, we have the Thurgood Marshall College Fund, which is a scholarship program for students at public, historically black colleges and universities, the International. Rescue Committee, American Forests, and RAIN, which is an anti-sexual violence organization. We've continued to do it. Our customers really like it. I think it's a positive thing we can do. And while it's not giving anonymously, it's still giving. I get it. And I think that's incredible. And it adds up, especially because this is the long game. It's not a short game. I was also struck by the fact that you are a fourth generation Lower East Sider, which is incredible. (laughs) Actually, you might be I've met first, second generation, but I've never met anybody fourth generation Lower East Sider. How has that influenced you as a human being and the founding of Uncommon Goods and just kind of directionally in life, culturally, values? So I'd say the Lower East Side of New York has always, I would say it's the neighborhood that to me at least personifies the dream that the Statue of Liberty talks about. It's been an immigrant neighborhood for less advantaged folks who are first coming to America. 
It's an incredibly diverse neighborhood. I've been raised by my parents to feel a commitment and have a responsibility to people who are less fortunate than I am. And this neighborhood, I've lived here since 1985. I actually lived with my grandfather here when I got out of college for a little while. The neighborhood back then was much less gentrified than it is today. We talk a lot about the partisan divide in America, and that's been on display to a tremendous extent over the past two weeks. But it's also a bigger problem is the divide of so-called haves and have-nots. It's very easy to turn a blind eye to people who are less fortunate than you are. And I would say if you live in a neighborhood where you're side by side with people who have less income, low income individuals, and you're out playing basketball and you're talking to people and develop friendships, relationships with people who have very different backgrounds, very different socioeconomic status than you. I think it creates a much higher degree of sensitivity to other people's challenges and you care more. And so I think it's influenced me in that it's helped prevent me from being isolated from the challenges that we face. And I would say similarly, not outsourcing our warehouse and understanding that we have homeless workers. Typically, that's more the case for our seasonal workforce. In this holiday season, we paid a minimum wage of $22 an hour in our warehouse. And part of that rationale was that we know how hard it is to make a go of it in New York, particularly in COVID New York. So I think being on the Lower East Side has helped keep me grounded. I'm sure you've caught, if not all, it was a long day for anyone, but at least parts of the inauguration day. I used to live in DC, so I actually lived through and participated in various ways in three inaugurations when I was going to school and then living in DC post-college. I've never seen, even though it had, unfortunately, there were constraints for negative reasons, both from a COVID standpoint, as well as security standpoint, that the incoming administration had to contemplate. I think that they did an incredible job around this notion of unification and empathy by bringing and stitching so many parts of really this great country together. And I'm more hopeful today than I was 48 hours ago. But it speaks to what you're talking about, because I think that whether it's in a 22-year-old poet laureate who's able to talk about shining light where there hasn't been and helping to bring a level of awareness for so many of us, I just think that it was so well done is really what you're talking about. You're talking about it in a micro environment in terms of the Lower East Side being a microcosm of a larger thing. But I'm very, very hopeful that it's going to take time. It's not going to happen overnight, that we're on a better path. Last question. We've had a lot of guests on a very common theme with founders as well as leaders in general who happen to be quite successful is not just that they're empathetic and they are okay with being humble and understanding what humility means, but also in your words, they practice a people first philosophy when it comes to running their organizations. And it could be someone like Juan Kim, who is the CEO of Smoothie King, who as a young Korean immigrant was able to buy the chain from the founders after successfully expanding the chain in Korea. And he is so passionate about being people first. It sounds like that very much is part of the grounding in terms of your own philosophy and the way you run your company. 
we are nothing without our team. What is a business? A business is people and an idea. You can be really successful as a sole practitioner or maybe with a handful of people, but as a company grows, you realize that you're only as successful as your team is. Their success is going to be driven by shared values and motivation. I am not, in my opinion, a natural leader, and I've really had to work on myself in order to be a more effective leader. As a parent, that's something I've also learned. You know, talk about humbling experiences. Nothing more humbling. The Japanese have an expression which loosely translated is fall down seven times, get up eight times. And I think leading a business or being a parent or being a friend or citizen, it's all part of that same effort. But I think putting your team first, especially as a company grows, is incredibly important. Going back to the very start of our conversation, you talk about failure. Anything worth doing is going to be hard. It's kind of my philosophy. Based on that, you're going to fall down. You're going to fail. But it's not really that you fail. It's just like, one, at least you're in the game. At least you tried. And two, it's how you process that. And like you said, get back up again for that eighth time to turn things around. And I think that's sound advice for anyone, especially an entrepreneur. To me, I distinguish between failure and defeat. Failure is temporary. It's events that have occurred that did not go according to plan. So this issue failed. But defeat is when you've allowed it to get to you, where you give up. I am defeated. I think as an entrepreneur, you've got to have a mindset of never being defeated. You have to believe in yourself. Dave Balotsky from Uncommon Goods, one of the OGs, not just for the e-commerce market and marketplace, but also when it comes to being a force for good and incorporating profit and purpose to help those around us and those in need and those who are underserved. And I really, really appreciate you coming on the show. And I hope that everybody listening goes to your website and continues to go to your website and buys as much as they possibly can to support all the great things that you're doing. So thank you. Aaron, thank you very much. It's really been a pleasure. Be well. This has been an episode of Brand on Purpose with Aaron Quipkin, the podcast dedicated to uncovering the untold stories of companies, organizations, and people who make it their mission to do well by doing good. Special thanks to our amazing production team, including Lindsay Hand, Dara Cawthron, Julie Strickland, and Nina Valdez. Learn more about our show and sponsorship opportunities at brandonpurpose.com. Learn more about our host at aaronquipkin.com. 